we basically found differentiation matters, and it matters more if you're a relatively smaller brand or if you're an emerging market. Welcome to Branding Over Wine, an exclusive podcast by Branding Mac. I'm Martin Schurer and I'm super excited to be sharing some great conversations with our personal marketing and branding heroes. Today I'm talking to Professor Dr. Kuhn Powells, one of today's most influential marketing professors. Some of the awards Kuhn won are the Odell Award, the Nobel Prize for Marketing Science. Kuhn also won the prize for Best Marketing Science Paper and is President-elect of the Academic Council of the American Marketing Association. And Kuhn probably has the longest intro sentence in his LinkedIn bio. So welcome Kuhn, it's a pleasure to have you here. I'm sure we'll learn a lot. Today we'll be talking about what to measure when building a brand. Should you focus on awareness or liking or perhaps customer satisfaction? And crucially, how do these metrics change according to the culture and country you're in? For instance, in Brazil, should you focus on reach or building awareness? Or frequency? And how does this differ from the UK market? So pour yourself a nice glass of wine and let's build brands. So Kuhn, great to have you on the show. I'm a big fan of your work. And it looks like that we can really bring something to the marketing to the marketing world and especially to branding. So one of the things that I found very interesting in your work is the the role of brand equity on the marketing mix. To start with and to bring everybody on the same page. Can you explain a little bit what you mean with uh, brand equity? <laughs> yes, we had this uh, had this discussion very often actually. So so for me brand equity is really how uh, how consumers on the market react differently to your products because it has the brand so, so that is very close to the definition of Kevin Keller, with which I, I cooperated with and taught together with at, uh, at, at Dartmouth. So, uh, I mean, the typical example is uh, we actually, at, at, you know, when I was at Dartmouth, I, I met the then CEO of Nissan and Renault, which now is in the news for completely different reasons. And so he actually told me, so one of the things he did, and I think this is a great illustration of brand equity. So, so he gave people uh, a car to drive with for a week and it was a controlled experiment, right? So it was, yeah. it was, it was a car, but there was no brand on it. And they drove with it for a week. And then at the end, he said, oh, it's a Toyota or it's a Nissan, his own brand. And then he asked, you know, are you willing to buy it? You know, what is your intent? And how much are you willing to pay for it? And so people for exactly the same product were willing to pay $1,000 more for the Toyota. So he's like, well, this is my negative brand equity compared to Toyota. And what can we do with my firm to kind of reduce that gap, right? Or even succeed it. And so for me, that was the most you know, straightforward example in practice of brand equity. So exactly the same product, but people uh, you know, do it differently. I would add one thing to it. So he told the brand at the end, if he would oh, have told it at the beginning, you know, so it was just a halo effect, as people yeah, call yeah. it. If he would have told us at the beginning, we could also see how knowing the brand would uh, affect people's perception of its attributes. So things mm-hmm. like uh, how easy it is to operate it, uh, how sturdy is, is, is the product also depends uh, on the brand. And so oh, this is this fascinating thing that um, and there's been lots of interesting market research about it, that if you tell people, for instance, that it's an Apple versus a Samsung, 
they will actually perceive things to be very differently in terms of the attributes than the experts would rate. <laughs> so, mm. so brand has, has two ways of differential response. There's a halo effect of the brand. You know, you may kind of like Apple more or think it's better and so forth. But it also affects how you perceive the attributes while evaluating and even using the brand. So it's pretty powerful. So that actually means it's worthwhile trying to build your brand to highlight the attributes you would like to highlight or that you think that you are stronger in. Apparently it works. Uh, it, it does, and I'll give you another kind of fun example from my time at the talk at Dartmouth, right? So this is the early 2000s, and uh, the MBA program was very popular in the Americas, but not that well known in Europe, probably still not yet. So it's the very first uh, American MBA program, started in 1900, but it has, you know, a low, slower scale than, you know, a Harvard or a Stanford, so it's not as well known. So what we did is we brought in these European business journal, uh, journalists to write about us and, you know, how fantastic we were. And I noticed in the brochure we gave them, you know what we said? We said, look, you know, we have smaller class sizes than Harvard. And, uh, you know, the faculty is actually accessible because uh, everybody will get a, a class by them and you can go to their offices. And I'm like, this is all wrong. People, you're only talking about points of difference, right? This is again, you know, color talk. You're only seeing how we're different from Harvard. But you can do that once you have established that you play in the same league as Harvard. So we first have to tell these European business journalists, look, you know, this is, this is how, uh, how accomplished our MBAs are. This is how much they earn afterwards. This is the academic accomplishments of our professors, which are all on par or better than Harvard, right? So first, mm -hmm. establish point of parity, and then you can talk about, hey, now, and this is how we're different. Our class sizes are small and so forth. Otherwise, people will do what we call the negative associations. They will be, oh, your professors are more accessible. That must mean they're not as busy. They're not as successful as the ones in your competitor, and so forth and so forth. So it's, it's a very nuanced but fascinating area that it's, it's crucial to get Indeed. right. Indeed. So basically, when at Dartmouth, you first made sure that you were in, let's say, in the league of Harvard, to be as close as possible so, uh, uh, to, to Harvard, that people associate you with Harvard, that you, let's say, can use their, let's say, their brand equity or their halo, if you will. And exactly. then you look, differentiation works. But you first have to be in the league. If you immediately start differentiating, uh, differentiating it doesn't work. Yeah. This is good stuff. This is good stuff. This is, uh, this is stuff I wish I knew when I started out in uh, branding and marketing. And does this, when you look at this, how brand equity works, does this matter per market? For instance, if you look at emerging markets or more mature markets or? Yeah. Uh, it, it does. And so, uh, so I left, you know, first in Belgium. I kind of left Belgium because I thought it was too boring with, <laughs> with all respect <laughs> for my yeah. fellow Belgians. Uh, yeah. You know, then I spent time in the US, then I went eight years to Turkey, an emerging market. I left Turkey because it was too exciting. <laughs> so now I'm back to the States. <laughs> but so, so, so one of the fascinating differences, and, and you, you referred in your opening to this the study that I did, right? So this was for exactly the same brands with exactly the same positioning, in, in the UK and in Brazil. And so, and so in that study, we had the typical, we had marketing, spending, price, and so forth, and we had sales. Mm -hmm. But then mm -hmm. we also had these kind of typical measures of brand equity, from, from, from awareness to consideration to brand love. And so one of the fascinating things we saw there is that um, it is, you know, for a new product in this category, it was much easier to get awareness in Brazil than in the UK. 
And when we asked, we saw that that resilience, and I'm going to just use this as, a, as an illustration of an emerging markets, right? Brazilians uh, were not as, um, as averse to, to being communicated to. They were paying attention to signals out in the market and, oh, this is a new product, this may be interesting for me. Uh, UK people, and I think US is very similar in Western Europe, they blocked off a lot of the communication. So it was very hard mm -hmm. to get through. But then the interesting part is that once the Brazilians were aware, it would take a very uh, long time for them to get to consideration. And so when we, when we dig deeper, it turned out they really asked their friends or family, like, have you heard about this brand? Is this something good for me to have? And so they were much more aware of using it in a social setting. And so it was much harder for the brands to really get, get, get that true. Once they got consideration, actually, there was a huge impact on their sales. In the UK, so it was very hard to get, to get through to kind of the advertising had a lower uh, effect on awareness. But once you get awareness, uh, consideration was not that important. It was really brand love. So it was a brand mm. for me that I loved, and that translated almost right away to sales. So when we asked UK consumers, it turned out that, and this was, by the way, uh, a deodorant, right? So, uh, so they're like, oh, when you, when you pitch me something new, from the moment you can convince me it's a product for me, let's say it's a product for a man, right, like me, <laughs> uh, and, and from the moment you kind of get to my attention, I will quickly try it out. I don't have to ask my friends or family. <laughs> and so it was a very different way of, of acting with that. And so also, you know, you didn't have to say much about price or value and so forth because, you know, it's a small part of my budget and I don't care that much. And so once you get the brand love part, it translated uh, to sales. So we had, you know, brand love is very important, and, but very tough to get to, to get just people to get attention in the UK. Uh, whereas in Brazil, we had, uh, hey, brand consideration is more important to translate to sales. And yes, you can get awareness, but to get from awareness to consideration, you have to touch so many more people to kind of uh, get this overall feeling kind of in my, in, my, in my social circle, right? That this is indeed a, a product that I should try or, you know, that I should be seen using. Oh, that's fascinating. So basically, if I translate what you say, it's to say the funnel has a different shape and you should work on the different buttons because let's say um, it's easier to get awareness in Brazil, but it's more difficult to get consideration uh, which would be the opposite of the market, like in the UK, or let's say a more, uh, a more, let's say more Western liberal market, where it is much more difficult to get awareness, but it's easier to get consideration once you build that brand love. Uh, exactly, and so um, and, and that was that was that was really striking to me, also in terms of what that meant for the for this multinational company. So, so I, I worked a lot with global companies, just just as you have, right? And so in the beginning of my career, I was a stickler for measurement. I, so I always insist on consistent measurement all over the world. I'm like, you have to standardize. Because what it means to be aware, consider our brand love, that should be the same in every market. Otherwise, you just can't compare, right? So um, I, was, I was working, this was this very big uh, B2B multinational company. And so they had this big problem of what is a qualified lead? Because a qualified lead would be the point that marketing would pass it on to Salesforce. <laughs> and so, but a qualified lead, what that meant in France versus in Germany was different. <laughs> and so, it was Indonesia versus the US. And so I'm like, well, we have to have the measurement has to be consistent. But then going back to this study, kind of how you, um, how you look at which of these metrics you should focus on increasing, that's completely different all over the world because they have different effects and it's, it's a different effort to move them. 
So the measurement should be consistent, and I still really believe that. But, but yeah. because of that study, I got convinced that kind of which, which levels you should pull to increase which metrics, that should be really left up to the, the, the local expertise and the understanding of the market. That's fascinating. So here, let's say, to manage international brands, you need a certain flexibility to look at your media mix. If you should focus on the frequency, should you focus on awareness, should you try to build brand liking or even brand love? And that, that, and that matters per market. Yeah. And let's say, are there, let's say, is, um, and if you say per market, what are the underlying reasons that these markets are different? Yeah. Uh, so so we, we really went deep into that one. Uh, for this particular kind of paper, so I'm an empiricist, right? So I like to kind yeah. of stick very close to my data, but I have been told by everybody I should kind of abstract and theorize more. So what we did for this particular one, and then later on, we also examined it in other emerging markets, and other mature markets, by the way. So, uh, so we looked at both economic, institutional, and, and, and cultural factors. And so, for instance, uh, one of the reasons that people in a lot of emerging markets don't try things, you know, that they get exposed to very quickly, is because uh, there is a certain risk in trying a brand. And so, number one, the risk is physical. So, and, and I realized that, so, so growing up in Belgium, right, if, if, if I go to a retailer, I would assume that every brand on that retailer shelf does not harm me physically. <laughs> I, was, I had a lot of trust in kind of, in, 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 in that. Whereas, you know, my friends grew up in emerging markets, they're like, no, we had bad experiences that, you know, food products we ate were not bad. So there's just much more of that buyer beware, right, caveat emptor, mm. in, in, in markets where when you grew up, there were some bad experiences. Uh, I always laugh with that uh, in my family, because I say, you know, if you say the word surprise, to me, that means something positive, because I grew up in a culture where surprises were typically <laughs> positive. To my yeah. wife, that's negative, because she grew up in a place <laughs> where surprises were typically negative. So even the word surprise is different, so let alone kind of, you know, the risk you perceive. So there is this underlying kind of, uh, of risk. There's also the cultural aspects about how much does the, you know, the shirt I wear say, say about me and my status in society. So, mm. so if you have a more egalitarian society, and specifically where people don't judge you that much by the products that you consume, then you're going to see less risk socially in trying. So, so, so that's the, uh, and, yeah. and I think that's one of the important uh, things that explains the kind of the more social aspect there. Uh, you know, we have, let's say, uh, similar data that uh, in different aspects that are actually very much in line with what you said. So what we looked at, uh, the relationship between uh, drinking draft beer, you know, the, the beer that you have yeah. there without any label on them, without any uh, brand, or bottled beer, which is closed. And what we saw, there was a relationship between uh, such aspects as, do you trust your fellow man in the streets? and buying bottled beer or draft beer. So where the trust is lower in society and your fellow man, people want to have the bottle because you know, it's not tinkered with, it's nice, it's safe. Yeah, that makes so and much where, sense. Yeah, yeah where, and where there is less, so where there's less trust, people want to have the brand and where it's strong and it reflects some of the, uh, the insecurities people have about society. And where there is, let's say, more trust, people would prefer draft. So this is, uh, this yeah. is interesting and also uh, uh, like you I've um, uh, worked and uh, lived around the world and indeed where you see in countries where there is largest sense of insecurity there is also a more need for control and control driven 
Definitely. So let's say it, 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 it works even with the smallest aspects. For instance, the kids in the Netherlands, they, you know, they, they are taught from the very early age, I'm Dutch, to, to brush their teeth themselves. Yeah. Well, in Eastern Europe, no, no. The kids on the, you know, it's, it's only when they're seven, when they know how to write properly, can they brush their teeth. So we do it for them. So this ingrains this yeah. trust in what you have and this control in quality straight from the beginning. And especially, it also has, has lots of implications, for instance, for brand architecture, right? So, 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 so let's say in the West, uh, a lot of the big brands are what we call a house of brands. So P&G and Unilever, they, they, they promote their specific brands and, and they try, you know, to limit the overlap. I mean, P&G and laundry detergent is an obvious example, right? They have you yeah, know, all yeah. of the major brands and they try to make them stand apart. So the P&G part, you really have to look at the fine print. Whereas in, and this is now 10, 20 years ago, so you probably have much more recent examples. When I saw commercials of P&G in, in Japan, they actually, they actually and, and in the rest of Asia, they actually had P&G very strong because they said, well, people have to trust that we're this big kind of company that they can trust <laughs> and then we can sell our brands. And so um, I also saw that in Turkey, for instance. So in Turkey, they always say money attracts money. So, so, so businesses and consumers like to do uh, business with really big conglomerates that are in a gazillion <laughs> yeah. industries. Whereas yeah. we in the West would say, no, you know, diverse, you know, you can diversify a bit, but you should focus on your core. And, and why would I do business with, with, with the name that is everywhere? Whereas in, in Turkey, people are like, no, if your name is everywhere, that means that I can trust you. <laughs> and that was very yeah. important. That's, that's so fascinating. So we also me measure, let's say, let's say the trust uh, people have in multinationals. And the trust people have in multinationals is actually, and with trust I mean uh, consumer trust, is yeah. actually higher in many emerging markets. And probably because there is this lack of framework to look at the, pro uh, at the product quality and these institutions to, to, to safeguard this. And then you see that multinationals have a different role in society and that people look at multinationals differently. While in the West, people are much more critical of multinationals. For instance, that's the big paradox that companies like Unilever, who are actually doing a lot on purpose and on sustainability, yeah. uh, they automatically get a bad rap. Because the people that believe in sustainability and purpose are also much more critical. We've measured it. We don't actually say this. Uh, we have actually measured this. Uh, of the multinationals. So the people that are most open to purpose are the ones that look most critical at multinationals. So this is, this what is you do- absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it's almost a damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yes, right? exactly. Because, because, because yes, I mean, just like you, I know how serious Unilever is in sustainability. I mean, so for instance, again, from my time in Turkey, uh, people, people within the country, right, would propose certain things that were great for the Turkish consumer, but not that good for environment. And Unilever just rejected that. They're like, no, globally, we want to kind of reduce that. So even if the Turkish consumer, uh, there's a very fun kind of um, other anecdote about this. Even if the Turkish consumer doesn't really care about what's going on with the lakes and the rivers, right? I think it's the government responsibility, not theirs. And they're not willing yeah. to pay more for something. You know, we have this as the purpose of our, uh, of our society. I also think that in the West, the press is specifically, and I think that's what journalists are supposed to do, right? They specifically want to attack multinationals. If you're powerful as an individual or an institution, then the press is very critical on you. So, so, so one, of the, one of the quick examples about this one that I really had to laugh with. So, so I think two or three weeks ago, there was an economic study that came out that in the US, when, when, when Amazon comes to town, right? You know, Amazon has the $15 minimum wage. 
which is, yeah. you know, what, what, what people have been trying to get in America for a long time. When they come in town and they have the $15 minimum wage by themselves, then the other big employers like Walmart also have to increase their wages. Yes, so, yes. So, so you would think, well, this is absolutely fantastic, right? But so the New York Times is covering the study. And, 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 you know, they're like, oh, my God, you know, we can't publish an article that is universally positive about a big company that is powerful. <laughs> so what they do is that they cover the study for one third and then the other two thirds. And I can just imagine them trying to find something negative. They talk to kind of smaller businesses who then complain that, you know, they can't afford to offer their employees uh, $15 so they're competing. So, 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 so even with the study that was completely positive about the company, the journalist managed to kind of attach <laughs> something negative to it. <laughs> to yeah. kind of, and two-thirds of the articles about that one. So, so I mean, there is, you know, uh, there's always kind of um, some, some, some implicit bias. And it, it just comes from here yeah, in the West, you know, and I think in general it's a good idea. Journalists just really want to dig up the dirt on people in power. Yeah. It's, it's true. It's, I mean, that's the role of society. That's what they're good yeah. at and that's what they have to do. I mean, uh, if there's anybody that should hold truth to power, especially in these uh, complex days, it's journalists. Mm -hmm. However, they're also biased, I guess, just mm -hmm. like all of us. And this is the, we actually measured uh, that most of the journalists uh, have a, a difference. Uh, we've measured in the Netherlands, have more of, let's say, um, an intellectual left liberal background, a liberal yeah. in the American sense of the word, not in the European sense yeah. of the word. So the, um, and that colors the way they look at the world. Yeah, and, and I think that's very natural, right? I mean, they're supposed to have it. So, so just like, yeah. you know, the police force is supposed to have, you know, attract, attract people who have more of a law and order, <laughs> conservative <laughs> bias. And, and that doesn't bother anybody, right? Because you just expect that, you know, different professions indeed have. It's good to be aware of it, but it is indeed natural, I would say. Yeah. That's Another part of what I found very interesting in your work when was, is that the work on differentiation. So there is a lot of the discussion about being distinct and, and, and being different and what's more important and does differentiation really matter? So that's the first question. Does it matter? Well, you know, you know me, I teach MBA, so I always say it depends as an answer. <laughs> and, then, and then for me, the fascinating thing is then to look at what does it depend on? And, and, and so a study that, that I recently finished, and this was absolutely fascinating, it was in, in, in five uh, countries around the world, hundreds of brands. And so it was uh, places like Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, um, uh, Germany, the UK. Um, and so, so we had hundreds of brands, uh, and I'm a time series guy. So how I look at things like differentiation is that, you know, I have, I have basically an overtime measurement for your brand. Um, and then what was measured there were things like sales, uh, but uh, we, had, we had differentiation. We had brand awareness, customer satisfaction, we had penetration, uh, which is mm -hmm. really important. Um, unfortunately, we didn't have salience as such. <laughs> we can talk more about that <laughs> one later. But so, yeah. so we had all of these things, and then per brand, we did the analysis which says, hey, uh, which, which uh, metric leads another metric? Uh, and then and they did that per brand and then aggregated it up the country. And so the fascinating thing we found is that, first of all, there is differentiation. So that's, that's one thing. <laughs> so, so, so people definitely uh, in, in, in service say, yes, this brand is different than others or it's better than others in, in meaningful ways. Uh, but differentiation mattered most um, in, for smaller brands versus larger brands and in emerging countries versus mature markets. 
so 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 uh, a lot of the of the of the research right are the uh, the claims that differentiation doesn't matter at all and that you can't even achieve it so so first you can't achieve it and plus it doesn't matter at all uh, that evidence mostly comes from very big brands in very stable you know set markets in western economies and so yeah. and, and, and so from the study we're like well they have a point differentiation matters less there but if you're a smaller brand, if you, if you want to challenge the status quo, uh, or if you're in an emerging market, then differentiation matters a lot. And that's even controlling for things like penetration and customer satisfaction and so forth. So, so we basically found differentiation matters, and it matters more if you're a relatively smaller brand or if you're an emerging market. That is really, really fascinating. So smaller brands need to differentiate? And larger brands need to focus on, let's say, their salience or their distinctiveness, if you want to call it that way. Um, and, you, and you also looked at emerging markets. So emerging markets, to get this right, does differentiation matter more or does it matter less? Uh, it matters more than emerging markets. Um, and so um, that is actually, that would actually be a wonderful thing for future research, right? Because we just talked in the previous part about the fact that uh, you know, people should really trust <laughs> your brand in an emerging market. Yeah. Uh, but so we also found that it, it, it really matters in, um, in, in standing out and that, that it drives sales more in an emerging market versus a mature market. And, wh and what would the reasons behind that be? Because that is such a cool insight that I, I, I'm sure many marketeers uh, have not thought about it, that, that these aspects work differently in different markets. Can you say something about what, what, what could be behind this? Uh, so that's a great question because we never, I mean, we wrote this up as a, as a small managerial article, right? And, and, and again, kind of sticking very close to, uh, to, uh, to, to the empirical, the data that we, that we find. Uh, so, so, you know, speculating. Um, I think one of the major things is that differentiation is just harder to achieve in these immature markets. Uh, likely because people don't pay that much attention to your brand. There's, there's been a lot of been written that hey, mm. consumers just don't care about you. <laughs> you have you have seen you have seen these things. Right? As a marketer, we think our brand is everything. At least for the you know you know nine or ten hours a day we're working for it, I think. But then when we're a consumer, I mean, in in most categories, we're not that highly involved, uh, and we don't really care that much about brand. We're mostly creatures of habit, and so I think that's definitely true for Western markets again. Right, you know, we have, you know, we're very time sensitive. We don't have enough time to spend on it. We're not very price sensitive, right? Time is our scarce resource in life, and so and so we don't pay that much attention. And so when you ask me, you know, what the difference between brands is, I would say no, they're pretty much the same. I mean, one of them is closer to me and so forth. Uh, you know, uh, you know, easier for me to get and more convenient. Whereas in this uh, in emerging markets, going back to the Brazil study, we found that people actually did very much pay attention to signals about brands, and they they verified them. Right? They asked family and friends. They they didn't take the brand communication for granted. They actually tried it out, and they were very critical. But then once they see, oh, that brand indeed works better, or that brand when I wear it in a social setting gives me much more prestige than another brand then they, they really stick to it. So I think it has to do with, with really attention and that attention is very scarce in our economies, but it's not that scarce in, uh, in, in, in emerging markets. So that is an interesting insight. So if there is a relation between, let's say, the amount of attention consumers have and the way you can differentiate the brand, that would suggest that also within markets, this could be, let's say, a skill. 
that consumers who have more attention, for instance, um, uh, groups of consumers that are perhaps a little bit older, that are a bit more, more let's say, um, less driven to be constantly that fear of missing out, yeah. that they dif- that they are more open to differentiation. They're more open to getting um, to know the brand, if you want to call it that way. Uh, that's, a, that's actually a great insight. Um, I mean, I, let's, let's use my father as an example, right? So, so, so my father is somebody who always has thought extremely carefully about his purchases. Uh, I mean, when, you know, when he's in the market for a new car, it only happens once every eight to 10 years, by the way. <laughs> he's, he's also, so he, he really went all out of his way and also visited the same dealer several times until one of the dealers simply says, you're right, my competitor's product is better and I just go buy that one and don't bother me <laughs> but, but, but he's extremely careful and he has lists of everything. And I, when the internet came about, I really encouraged him to put this online because it would be so valuable, but, but you know, he didn't. Uh, but, but you're right. I mean, I can definitely see somebody like him, which I always go for expert advice on whatever I want to buy, right? And then what, what he would do is that he would have this whole staple of uh, test tank up, right? The, uh, the consumer yeah, yeah, report. Yeah. And he yeah. would pull exactly the one where he made notes about kind of uh, how different things are. But then, yes, he was, he was, uh, he was paying a lot of attention to, uh, you know, how brands and products were different. Whereas, you know, you're right. Uh, I don't see the same thing happening either with me or with, uh, with young consumers. And it also looks like, like the, the, the type of consumers, because that would mean that more critical consumers are actually more open to differentiated brands, which it looks like they are. I mean, we have, at, uh, at, at, we, have, we have a lot of data, for instance, that um, people that are very critical like critical brands as well. Look at uh, Patagonia that have a message and stuff. But it's not only because of the message, but also because they're more open to getting the information on these brands. So, you know, it is easier to build such differentiated brands, one, because of the message, mm-hmm. and two, because the consumers are more open. This is, let's say, about one-third of society in Northwestern Europe that is more open and more critical to uh, getting all this information. And, 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 this, and, the brand, and the brand you mentioned is a brand with purpose, right? So, so because that, yes. is, that is indeed part of it. Uh, so Patagonia always comes up on the top of lists of, of, uh, of brands with purpose. And, and I would say, and you know, going from my father to my, my teenage son, right? He, he, is, he is very much uh, you know, looking for brands with purpose, is very much willing to change his consumption patterns uh, based on it. Uh, but, but, you know, as you said, these are also the most critical consumers. So if you build up something with a purpose, you, you better, you know, walk, walk your talk. Because otherwise, they're very yes. quick to turn away from you. I have this always in, this, in discussions about uh, Nike's Dream Crazy campaign with Colin Kaepernick. So, so that, that's the first Harvard case that I wrote. And I, I'm so happy to, uh, to use it um, in, in, my, in my classroom, right? And so every time kind of this comes up, and there's lots of metrics about how people reacted to that one, uh, you see very critical people saying, I mean, yes, I love the cause that they're promoting, but it's so, it's so uh, cheap of Nike and so, um, uh, so, so deceitful to do it. 
because and what have they really really done i mean look at their management right look at other scandals that have come to uh, to the fore right they're just kind of using this course as a way to further their agenda and to sell more shoes i mean how how commercial can you get so and and there's there's a very fine line I, I think in the discussion typically comes out that in the aggregate, right, you know, they, you know, they did the right thing. This is something that they could get behind. I also always say kind of could like Starbucks do it. And so we get to the difference in purpose between product and service brands. So as a product brand, right, Patagonia, mm. Nike. So you yeah. make your stuff and then you, you, you ship it out, right? And there's, there's very little frontline personnel or service personnel. So if you say I have a purpose, right, and it's, you know, about inclusiveness, then uh, unless you really mess up with the management, I mean, the product, you know, a product can discriminate, right? The product can be racist. Whereas if you're a big service, let's say you're Starbucks or McDonald's, and, and people need your service pers- pers- personnel every day, and Starbucks got into problems because of that, right? You, you have to kind of to be seen as authentic and living to your purpose. All of these hundreds of thousands of service personnel have to live inclusiveness which is virtually impossible to guarantee. <laughs> so, so, so I think for product uh, um, uh, companies, you know, that, that send out products, it is much easier to be seen as living their purpose, uh, as if it has to do with human relations in some way, than for a service company that will always be evaluated on the latest encounters with the service person from that company. It's just, it's just a much bigger challenge. And I think they have to think much more carefully about how they can live up to promises and, and how far they can go into promoting that they that's so fascinating and that's so fascinating and there's this um, there's a little lot of let's say writing and marketing thinking about purpose out uh, some are more critical some are more positive um, from the sound of it it sounds that you are have a more positive slide on, um, on on this view that you do think purpose matters in marketing and communication it matters, but you first have to get your house in order, I always say. So it's, it's you know, the worst thing to promote if there are skeletons in the closet that you shouldn't. So, so, <laughs> yes. uh, so, so one of my most popular recent Journal of Marketing papers uh, found something absolutely fascinating that we didn't expect. So this was a paper that looked at social media and then the effect on customer metrics, right? Like mm-hmm. people, you know, the buzz that you get and so forth. And then uh, stock price. We didn't have sales. We had stock prices and risks. So it was a very financial measure. And so, and so we looked at kind of the size of your social media following, uh, what people said about you, positive and negative. But we also looked at your own tweets. So this was thousands of brands. And we found that on average, when you tweeted yourself, it had a negative impact. And we're like, mm. how on earth can that be? <laughs> Should we just fire all the you know, social media department? So, of course, you know, when consumers say something positive and negative about you instead of feeling that, oh, but this negative effect, we just couldn't wrap our head around it. And the reviewers couldn't either. That's why, you know, there's a review process. So we dig deeper and we looked at all of these brands and we looked at uh, uh, their corporate reputation and, and, and any other measure that talked about how they were perceived as, as a firm. And so we found out if you were perceived well as a firm, your own tweets and your own kind of social media posts, they did have a positive effect. It was for the other cases that it had a negative effect. And so when you look at the social media posts of the brands, they're the ones that get hacked, right? That get repurposed and, you know, they start with something positive, of course, but then people kind of steal it and make it something negative. Uh, so if, you, if you're a bank that has just evicted lots of people, or if you're you know, a fast food restaurant that is, that is not known for some good practices, 
then, then kind of tweeting yourself is maybe not be the best idea. Maybe you should let your fans talk about you instead. <laughs> Whereas yeah. it's only when you really have your house in order that people in generally feel that you treat your employees right, that you know, you're not, at least not harmful to the environment and so forth and so forth. Only in those cases uh, does your own social media tweets actually help you. And so I thought that was a fascinating kind of you know, new insight uh, from that study. It does, and it shows that you know, we have to walk the walk. And not yep. only talk, talk, and it's what I strongly believe in. You have to be authentic. You have to be like true to yourself. And that also means choosing the purpose themes that fit you and that fit what your consumers think about you. Otherwise, it's, it will not be seen as authentic. And you risk this negative PR. And so tell me that this is actually, we walked over it very quickly, but this is actually also a fascinating field. So what is the relationship between negative PR and brand value? Have you looked into that? Uh, so, so we're now, and I was just, you know, before the, the podcast, I was just, uh, you know, working on that paper. We have, we have now a very big study uh, that looks at negative PR events. And so mm. we take all of them. Because if you look at, at the, the research on, on crises, right, and firestorms, uh, as, they, as they're now called, <laughs> uh, instead, instead of the previous work. So if you look at firestorms and all of the research about it, all of the research is about, okay, uh, how should you react to it as a firm? But the typical assumption is that it will have a negative effect for you. Whereas there's, there's thousands of events that happened, you know, negative PR that doesn't affect your firm. And so the whole kind of that paper is all about if you now take all of the events, how do you know and how can you track which one will have a, a, a harm for you or not? And then, and then, of course, that should inspire how you should react. And, and, and one of the typical examples, this is from a long time ago, right? Uh, but so in, I think it's like 2010. So Pampers had this reformulation. So they had the new Pampers and they sold this instead of the old one. So it's kind of the old Coke, new Coke thing, right? So consumers were suddenly confronted with with a new formulation of this diaper and 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 pampers had tested it and say hey this is better than the old one so right away on facebook on social media there were whole groups of parents that showed their horribly kind of burnt babies uh, buttons <laughs> saying no this is horrible this really this really hurt me and it's horrible and they should do this back. so what did pampers do did they give it no they said you guys are wrong we are right we tested this this thing is not because of that one and so instead of what the literature suggests that you should apologize and you should, you know, try to change it back and everything, they just, you know, stood firmly by their convictions. And they did some more testing, of course, right? But, but this whole kind of huge event, which is very, a lot of negative press also in the mainstream media, never, never hurt it. And so, and so we like to kind of, you know, if, if you're a manager, right, and you have the social media war room every day and you walk in, you will constantly panic. Because you will constantly see things that may potentially harm you and that you think, should you react to it? Um, and then, you know, I think the main message of, of our paper will be don't panic, right? <laughs> Stay calm and kind of, you know, these are some metrics that you should track. Uh, because in a lot of cases, you can just let it kind of blow over. And, uh, and of course, we look at specific characteristics of events, uh, which are more severe, of course, are more important. But not, not everything that causes a blip on social media or even in the mainstream press uh, deserves or is worthy of your, of your reaction. Huh. So this, is th th this would suggest that brands are actually more resilient to, what, uh, to crisis or firestones. It's indeed uh, uh, very... Um, modern way of calling them. 
so, 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 so yeah, I, I, would, I would say so. And so this is another value coming back to the beginning of our talk about brand equity, right? A strong brand indeed helps you to overcome these things. It also helps when, when, when your detractor even go on your own social, social media sites, right? Like on your Facebook group and talk badly about you. Uh, you will have your fans that offend you. Which is, which is typically way better than, than you trying to defend yourselves. So a strong brand also helps in those cases. So if you have a strong brand, not only does it help you weather the storm, it also makes sure that your helpers will pitch in yeah. to make it less bad, if you want to call it that way. Huh, those are interesting insights. Gosh, I really wish I, learned, I knew this uh, 10 years ago. <laughs> That is the, you mentioned also in, in the, be the beginning, salience. So, uh, first of all, uh, how important is salience and compared to differentiation? And where is it more important or less important? What, what kind of brands or markets? Yeah. So, so, first of all, salience is very important. And, and the way I got this, so unfortunately, in a lot of the data, there, there is no salience. And, and so, I, I'd love to kind of have a nice overtime data set to answer your question empirically. But, but how I got to salience was actually in an indirect way. So in a lot of my studies, besides brand awareness, I also had advertising awareness. And so in, in, in kind of, in an, in an official brand hierarchy model, advertising awareness should not matter at all. It's not in the Kevin Keller model. Why is that? Because, you know, so, so, so the question that you ask consumers in the survey is typically, have you seen any communication of that brand in the last six months? That's the question of advertising awareness. Yes. And, so, and, and so it shouldn't matter, right? But it matters a lot. So in, in my book that I have behind me, right? So I talk about so many brands that we actually controlling for brand love and consideration and brand awareness. Advertising awareness matters. And the strange thing is that it matters for brands that actually did not advertise in the last six months. So consumers were saying, yes, I have seen advertising of this brand, even though we knew for a fact, because we were working with the brand, that they had so, so, so I think that was a proxy for salience. Uh, because your brand was salient, <laughs> you, you, you said this in a thing. So later then also, if you look at Francisco Cacola, right? So they had this enormous kind of over 100 uh, questions, uh, questionnaire all over the world to look at by country, which metrics are the most important. And ultimately, by experience, they narrowed it down to just five. <laughs> and wow. one of them is advertising awareness. It's just absolutely amazing. So, so they, have, um, they have advertising awareness, right? So have you seen mm -hmm. advertising for Coke in the last six months? And, and, and because they kind of um, could establish the link with sales and, in a, and penetration in the country, that's why they continued measuring it. And, and that is one of the reasons that they continue to have the cute advertisers, you know, with the polar bears and get the feeling, because if virtually everybody knows the brand. If you look at the brand awareness of Coca-Cola, it's extremely high and it can rarely move. But advertising awareness uh, was, was going up and down, different by country, and was very important uh, to track of. So I think it kind of that it was a proxy for salience. So salience is important. Um, I just kind of, uh, I, I wouldn't overestimate the importance. There are counterexamples. So one of them, I just talked to a brand manager just yesterday. So he was managing in Canada uh, a ceramic wrap uh, uh, kind of uh, brand. And, and he had twice the market share and twice the profit of, of the salience leader. So the salience leader in Canada was almost synonymous with ceramic wrap. And so when you ask people, hey, which one do you know, which one come to mind? They always said it's competitive. And so, and so, and he's a, he's a big fan of the, you know, the wonderful Irma Bas Institute. So he's like, oh no, we have this huge salience gap. 
But it turned out that it was very much a legacy. So when people actually came to the supermarket and they saw, you know, the, uh, the ceramic wrap that was very salient to them and, 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 and their wrap, I won't name the brand here, but it's easy to imagine which one it is. You know, they were better positioned. They had shown that they were better uh, in, in, in doing whatever the, the people wanted it to do. You know, so, 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 so they, they typically won in sales and market share but they, they never could bridge the salience gap. So, so, so I think salience is important. It's just not, not, not the one metric that, should, that you should measure to kind of make sure you're on the right way. And this is a general thing, right? So in everything what I do, there's not a silver bullet metric in marketing. There's not one thing that you should measure that will solve everything, right? It's, it's like, you know, in the old days with the net promoter score, if only you knew the net promoter score, you knew everything to know about your yes. Complete BS. <laughs> And, and so any consultant that tells you that you only have to measure one thing to know how your brand is doing is, is wrong. Let me just tell you, that's the one thing that I've learned, right? So salience is very important. I'd love to get better data to look at it in a relation with other metrics, um, but it's not the one metric that, that you should track because it's a combination of metrics that you should be tracking. You mentioned five uh, metrics. So. Uh, I, uh, advertising awareness, that's a new one. I would have never thought about this, uh, that you actually, does people not only recognize your brand, but recognize the advertising of your brand. Yep. Uh, what are the other four? Oh, and this, so this is just for Coca-Cola, right? And this is a snapshot yeah. in time in the past. Uh, so I, yeah. but I think it's, it's a good illustration. So um, it, it, it was, is it the relevance? Is it something for me? Uh, why was this so important? Uh, because, you know, uh, you know Coca Coke is, is, is not the best nutrition you can give to your child. So, so in countries where they were underperforming like Greece, mothers just really thought that Coke was bad for their children. They would refuse to give Coca-Cola to their children. And so that was something really important. Like, is it good for me? Right? Uh, then you have value for money. So even if you think Coke is fantastic and good for you, you know, if you live in a certain country, you may not be able to afford it. So you will buy a third brand Coke, right? A local uh, cola instead of Coca-Cola. So it was, it was advertising awareness. It was, is the brand good for me? Uh, it was uh, a value for money. And then I was daily drinking, a behavioral measure. So the, the simple question was, have you drunk uh, Coca-Cola yesterday? That was it. <laughs> and that replaced a hundred questions about purchase intent, you know, what you thought about the brand and everything else. So, so they figured out that just saying, hey, did you drink Coke yesterday? That, that was a, a wonderful proxy and a much more precise replacement for a whole bunch of other kind of brand perception questions that were asked. That is so fascinating. And it means that one, basically what you measure, advertising awareness, did they just recently drink it? Is it relevant? And on some aspects such as value for money that are very specific to the brand, yep. let's say what the brand equity is, that is, you know, that means that with those five in this particular case, you get there. And that means that you have to look for other brands, perhaps something about awareness, salience, usage, and a few aspects of relevance of how, what the brand equity is. Exactly. And as I said, this, so, so this depends on your brand. And I think brand managers typically have figured this out over decades of working with it, right? So, so my framework when I come in is typically, hey, we have all of these metrics and something that's more than 100. <laughs> so complete overloads, right? Yeah. And then I look at, okay, does it ultimately drive sales? So I do have the sales conversion kind of criteria. And then can you as a brand manager drive it? So what is the marketing responsiveness of the metric? 
uh, and then there's some other kind of more technical things like how stable is it over time and, and stuff like that. But, but I think it's important to judge any metric that somebody offers to you by this thing, right? So if, you know, if anybody says, oh, this is the one kind of metric in between your marketing and your sales, right? In between your input and output, you should be measuring. You know, you should, you should critically evaluate it. You know, can I get good data on it? But also once you have the data, does it respond to things it should respond to that I can, I can move my levers? And then ultimately, does it have some positive input? It could be long-term, right? On a hard metric that my financial folks care about <laughs> that I can use to ask for more money, yes. right? And, and if the metric doesn't have either of these two or, or even just one of the two, why should you measure it? And, and or like track it in your, in your dashboard, you know? Because you can only really pay attention to maybe, you know, 10 or 20 metrics, right? There's some limitation to what you can act on. And, and I typically narrow down the field from hundreds of metrics to like maybe 10 or 20 based on, on these criteria. I think a lot of brands could use this advice. This is, there's sometimes there's this over measurement of metrics that are less relevant. Mm. We're nearing the end, uh, the end of the show. There are many cool subjects to talk about and I'm sure we'll discuss afterwards a bit. Two questions. First, what do you believe is the biggest issue in branding or marketing today? <laughs> I would say, uh, I mean, you know, going back to my single bullet metrics, right? I would say that there's way too much fashion in the industry. Um, and, and so I understand as a brand manager, you're constantly looking for the next big thing. But, but you shouldn't ignore what we have already learned. And, and, so, and, and so, so different kind of you know, academic researchers, institutions, have a wonderful repository about what we know about, you know, and it could be brand, it could be price sensitivity. We know a lot of stuff, but that typically, you know, in my experience, haven't made it through to people managing brands in the field. And so, and, and so that is something that kind of, you know, people following the fashion, whatever is the next big thing. We typically forget, uh, first of all, the next big thing that is being pitched to you is typically, as we call it, uh, you know, old wine and new bags. <laughs> so, so people have researched <laughs> yeah. before yeah. And, and the claims are typically exaggerated. Uh, so, so I think that is kind of the key thing, you know, understand what, 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 what people have researched before you and some of the major kind of learnings that come from it. And, and in all likelihood, they will still be relevant today. So instead of always focusing on what's changing, also pay attention to what has remained constant, because that may be a better basis to build your five-year blend burn that, than what, is, what might change and what the future may hold. I'm going to actually quote you on that one. So don't look at what's <laughs> changing, but look at what's constant. That's a nice yeah. one. And the last question, who should we invite next for the podcast? Oh my God, that is such a, <laughs> I didn't expect this question. No. Um, there's, there's so many wonderful people, right? So I would, I would, I would invite uh, Martin, of course, I would invite you, <laughs> this is your <laughs> podcast. So, so that was the first person I would recommend to everybody to invite, wonderful insights. Um, so, I mean, Kevin Keller would be a great idea. Kevin Keller, um, and that's indeed a great idea. Yeah. And then yes. Ashwin Malcher is, uh, is, is a co-author on lots of, um, of my recent ones. So he's, he's basically mm -hmm. a specialist in social media, and he can tell you a lot uh, there. Um, I could also recommend Michael Henlein, uh, the European professor. Yes. And, and so one of the things that impresses me about him is not just how good his research is, but also that he, he walks the walk in the sense that, you know, he studies Instagram. 
And so he became an Instagram influencer. He has this uh, Instagram account, uh, you know, something like Travels for Food. So this is before the pandemic. Every conference he would go to, he would take pictures of his food. And he is a, he's a food connoisseur. And he had a big <laughs> enough following to get brands to offer him discounts and free stuff. So, oh, wow. so Michael Henline is also good. And, and so he can talk also from experience and from practice about how he built that. Thank you, Kuhn, for joining us today and sharing your insights. I also want to thank you all for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed our conversation that you found it insightful. And if so, please share Branding Over Wine with friends and colleagues. And when you have a moment, we'd love to get your reviews or ratings. Hope to have you all listening in on our next podcast and take care. <laughs>